Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. In this episode, we interview Dr. Anima Anand Kumar. Anima holds dual positions in academia and industry. In academia, she is a professor in the Caltech Computing and Mathematical Sciences Department. In industry, she is the director of machine learning research at NVIDIA. At NVIDIA, she is leading the research group that develops next-generation AI algorithms. Anima is also the youngest named chair professor at Caltech, where she co-leads the AI for Science initiative. In this interview, some of the topics that we explored include what is the current attitude towards AI ethics from within the tech industry? How can AI engineers and humanities experts work together effectively? How can we make computer science a more inclusive discipline for women? What does it mean to democratize AI? Why should we? And how can we? It was an absolute pleasure to be able to have Anima on this show for many reasons, but one of the main reasons, at least for me personally, being a woman in technology and coming from a computer science background is just how much of a trailblazer Anima has been for so many women, and especially women of color in this technological computer science machine learning space. And so the ability for us to not only have Anima on the show, but to hear her personal story and her family's history and the reasons and motivation for why she does what she does and the amazing work that she does was just a real gift for Dylan and I. So for that reason and many more, we are so excited to share this interview with Dr. Anima Anand Kumar with all of you. Hi, Anima. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks a lot, Jess. I've been following your podcast and it's an honor to be on this. Thank you. Why don't we just get started today by talking a little bit about you as a person before we talk about you as a researcher. So could you start off by telling us a bit about what motivates you in life to do the work that you do? Yeah, you know, that's uh, uh, always right at the core of every person, right? What motivates them is what leads to everything else in the world. And for me, it's the curiosity, you know, I've always been a curious person. I've always wanted to learn more, keep learning, keep growing. And yeah, when it comes to math and science, the order and structure that it provides for the universe around us and how, you know, it gives us, to me, it gives me more meaning to my life around and to do good for humanity through maths and sciences, that's what has always motivated me. And to be now in the midst of all this AI progress has been a wonderful journey. Were you always interested in these topics like as a, as a child or is this something that has kind of been in process over a lot of time? Yeah, I've always been drawn to math and sciences ever since I can remember. Uh, you know, I remember as a kid, always fascinated with puzzles, you know, with math problems. And I would go to uh, my mom every day to give me new puzzles and even my grandmother. So the women in my family have been mathematically amazing. You know, my mom uh, was one of the first female engineers in the community. And in fact, she went on a hunger strike <laughs> 
to get into engineering because there was a lot of traditional right norms and people were worried um, uh, about her marriability if she became an engineer and so she encountered all that and overcame it and for me that's always been an inspiration to further uh, you know have more women in engineering and sciences and uh, yeah so that's been uh, my childhood experience has certainly shaped me to who I am today. Wow, could you maybe unpack that a little bit in terms of like unmarriability and like a woman being an engineer and if that's impacted you and influenced you in your life before? Yeah, certainly. I mean, right, this was many years ago, right? This was the previous generation and um, my mom hails from a traditional uh, community and uh uh, at that time, the worry was if a woman was very qualified, then, you know, who would marry her? And honestly, that's still there today, right? It's <laughs> just in a different form, in a different extent, maybe. Uh, so my grandparents were mostly concerned about her. So it was coming from a place of concern that, you know, what would happen to their daughter if she became an engineer and couldn't find a husband. <laughs> I get overwhelmed when I look at your resume <laughs> because I look at it and I'm just like, oh my God, this person has done so much and is doing so much. And even in preparation for this interview in thinking about kind of what we want to cover because there are so many different options. And I'm wondering as we get into kind of that that line, the through line between uh, your your personal work and then your family life and then this, this work that you're doing out in the world, um, if you have something on your heart right now or a project that kind of is uh, situating yourself right now that... Um, you're really just like feeling energy around that you'd like to uh, chat about. Yeah, and for me, uh, I'm very passionate about how AI is having an impact in this world today, right? Both the good and the bad. And I know in this podcast, uh, there's been a lot of coverage around what are the ethics around AI? What about AI bias? How do we harness AI for good, AI for social good, AI for sciences? So it's really now almost a moment of truth for AI, right? <laughs> because, you know, there's been excitement, maybe there's even hype over the last few years, but now it's like, okay, what can AI actually do? And we are still in the infancy, it's still early days, and I think it's important to manage expectations and at the same time understand what are the barriers for the current AI methods. So I'm very passionate about building next generation algorithms and frameworks around that to enable that, uh, because it's important to now think of a holistic picture. We can't be just you know in a corner, the proverbial elephant and the blind man, right? We can't work that way with AI anymore. So it's to me like a convergence of so many things coming together to enable the impact of AI that's been the most exciting for me right now. And it does seem like you do sit a little bit in that convergence of all the different sectors of AI. You know, in industry, you're the uh, the director of machine learning research at NVIDIA, and then also you're a professor at Caltech. And uh, I mean, you're the youngest named chair professor at Caltech. So you, you have a lot of different places that you are situated within this AI field. And so I'm curious from your perspective here, what do you think the next generation of AI is? Where is it going? Yeah, for me, I think it's so important to bring industry and academia together in a strong partnership to enable AI progress, right? So when we look at on the industry side, especially at NVIDIA, that's the heart of computing, 
you know, the modern day GPUs enabled parallelism and enabled us to overcome the end of Moore's law. And without that, we would not have these big deep learning models that give us impressive performance, right? So computing is the heart of it and that stays in industry. And the you know, engineering required for it, how to build the infrastructure, how to build the AI stack. And then we can ask, what are the algorithms that can exploit this form of computing, this scale of computing? And for that, there is also a lot of answers on the academic side because the foundations have been in academia. Right. So at Caltech, uh, you know, we've had the birth of NeurIPS. In fact, the NeurIPS conference started at Caltech, which so many people don't know. And the history of it can be traced back even uh, to the convergence of computing and neurosciences together, uh, the program called uh, CNS. And that started with a course with Richard Feynman, uh, John Hopfield and Carver Mead teaching together these diverse topics. Uh, so that interdisciplinary nature and foundations in academia is critical to build the next generation algorithms. So we need the strong partnership of you know, building new algorithms, thinking of different scientific domains and social sciences domains with expertise in academia and the engineering prowess of industry coming together. We hear a fair amount in these interviews about um how a lot of folks are looking for that interdisciplinarity, right? There's, there's a goal of being more interdisciplinary in these spaces, including in industry. Um, and then we hear a lot of uh, stories of pushback as well, of barriers to that interdisciplinarity. And I'm wondering uh, for yourself from where you're sitting about where you see some of those barriers and how we might overcome them. Certainly there are barriers, right? And that's why it's a challenge. Otherwise, you know, it wouldn't be a research problem. Uh, and to me, I think the question is how to dismantle those barriers. So at Caltech, uh, I've co-founded AI for Science, which is a campus-wide initiative to bring together different domain scientists with AI experts together and to work in an integrated manner, right? So most of the time, it's not just, okay, take this AI method or take this open source code, right? use it on the data in a black box way and out comes the answers. You know? <laughs> Maybe once in a while that happens, but that's rarely the case. So there are so many barriers you can uh, think about, right? One is the data itself in many scientific domains, it's small, it's limited, it's noisy, uh, but there's also a lot of domain knowledge. You know, The domain experts won't go out of business anytime soon. They hold those intuitions that are so key to working with small scale data and the current deep learning methods, right? Don't know how to infuse both of that together very well. And so that's then a new research problem for AI itself, how to build different kinds of domain knowledge and structure into our current AI algorithms that can seamlessly decide how to blend the two. And that's one of my core research areas. And so what it needs is this close partnership because the AI experts need to understand what are the core challenges in the scientific domain, right? What is uh, the domain expert bringing in? What kind of data is available? What are traditional solvers and methods able to do here? Um, and then the AI expert has to decide, are the current methods enough or do we need new ones? You know, where do we get started? Uh, and it's a long haul process. In so many cases, it's not just the data is all ready, right? We need to then collect new data 
Uh, for instance, uh, at Caltech, I work with Frances Arnold, uh, who won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago for her work in protein engineering. So now if you have to discover new important proteins, right, it's then a continuous process. The machine learning should guide how to discover new ones. And that's true in most scientific domains. The experiments are expensive. So how do we direct them to do new experiments and collect better data? And so that virtuous cycle, we have to design good algorithms for. So when I think of scientists, I, I tend to think of, you know, the biologist or the chemist or uh, the engineer. And it's not as often that I think of like a social scientist or someone who's in the humanities. And so I'm wondering if in your AI for science uh, initiative or organization or whatever the, the verbiage is there, are you also including social scientists and people who are a part of the humanities in that um, group? And if you aren't, why not? But if you are, how how does that collaboration work? Because AI is pretty far removed from a lot of what social scientists are learning. And social science is unfortunately super far removed from what a lot of computer scientists learn. So how do they actually work together and speak the same language on some of these projects? Yeah, in my experience, actually, that's worked wonderfully well. So indeed, at Caltech, we include humanities, uh, and social sciences when I say AI for sciences. Um, maybe the Caltech is a special case because there is a small community and everybody is mathematically minded to some extent and want to collaborate and want to use AI, right? So that openness helps a lot. And so I've been working with Professor Michael Alvarez from the social sciences uh, division, looking into all kinds of issues on social media. For instance, the Me Too movement We've been studying how the movement started, how it evolved, what were the counter movements, how do the conversations look like, what are the topics being discussed, can we control trolling on social media. So it's been very fascinating to hear their perspective in terms of how they go about framing the problem, right? So what are the questions they want to ask when it comes to the Me Too movement? And so that gives me a different perspective than for me as a computer scientist, I'm always very quantitative and we need to be quantitative, but also make sure we ask the right questions and look at the social implications of that. Uh, and so that's been uh, an ongoing uh, collaboration that I'm very excited about. Recently, we were uh, on the line with our colleague, uh, Dr. Jen uh, Wortman-Vaughn uh, over at Microsoft Research, and we were talking about the distinction between uh, some of these languages of responsible AI versus AI ethics. And originally, we had started this podcast and trying to probe and interrogate AI ethics, um, which has just evolved even in the months that we've been doing this podcast, that term, um, and responsible AI as well. And I'm curious for you of where you're sitting, again, between industry and the academy and um, in so many different perspectives, how, how you think about those topics um, and in terms of uh, your identity as a computer scientist, how you uh, go about thinking about ethics in general. Indeed, I'm so hopeful over the developments over the last even year or last few months, right? In terms of the increased awareness around AI ethics and the importance of it. I think uh, for a lot of computer scientists, it's this notion of don't ask, don't tell, right? So I'm not responsible for this. I just wanna think about math, leave me alone. And you know, there is still, you know, we have to counter that. I think uh, a lot of it comes from, you can trace back to the 
lack of right liberal and humanistic education even all the way in college so you know we only focus on technical education that's built on a military style regime right so that doesn't always encourage uh, this kind of thinking about the impact on society and on humanity and sometimes that's overwhelming i mean to think that if i design something that can you know adversely affect uh people's lives many people want to avoid a harsh truth like that and that's why i think it's so important uh for researchers who are being outspoken on this to continue on this because i think in the long run uh there'll be more people on board and we're already seeing that change you know people are now talking about it for instance new rips now requires a broader impact statement right so even the process of writing that now the researchers are forced to confront what could be the impact and you know for ai as an algorithm right that's like that by itself cannot be good or bad because that's just math right but the problem is the societal context in which it's deployed and who has the power to use them and uh, what happens if there are wrong answers given by ai who's in uh, you know in charge of handling that i think that's that broader context that so many engineers are disconnected from and that's why we have to reach out to policy makers we have to reach out to politicians we have to reach out to the general public and the awareness of what ai can and cannot do is so important and that's been increasing over the last few years now so with your experience working with ai and machine learning in industry especially do you think that the people that you work with who are working on ai tools and are specifically from that computer science and engineering perspective do you see that they are asking questions about societal impact and the unintended consequences of their technologies and their code or do you think that's something that is typically um like quieted and hushed and like you were saying before you know don't ask don't tell and it's kind of like this weird stigma what what are you seeing in your circles i mean it, there has been a change for sure right earlier there was just not even in the realm of conversation and uh, especially you know if uh, like a minority person like me right didn't even feel always comfortable bringing it up because otherwise i'm the only one talking about it and there's no response and it's just a quiet room uh but thankfully that's no longer the case in a way we are forced to confront about it because of some of the things in the news right i mean with the black lives matter movement finally face recognition being used by law enforcement right the company said we will stop selling that to law enforcement and there has to be regulation so when you see aspects like that seeing a title change now companies realize okay we can't just avoid this anymore and suddenly there is a huge need for experts on this topic and how to navigate this landscape i'm curious if you'd be willing to say more about um your experience uh, because i know you mentioned at the beginning of the interview as well your experience as a woman in the space um and then also your experience as a minority person in the space in in other um identities as well uh just what your experience has been with that and then also um there are a lot of folks that listen to this program who are uh young women of color who are looking for either advice or uh I know a lot of folks who look up to you in particular for everything that you you've been able to do in terms of breaking through some of those stigmas um and I'm wondering if you have pieces of advice or if you just be willing to share more of your story around that 
Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm proud to be a woman of color uh, in AI, in computer science, uh, you know, and uh, be able to uh, hopefully have more, more of us, you know, more minorities, more uh, people of color in these communities. And that's badly needed. And I was lucky, you know, I grew up in a family where uh, uh, my mom being an engineer, she encouraged me to uh, uh, look into maths and sciences in early childhood and I loved it. So that became a greatly synergistic experience for me. And even all through, you know, I went to engineering college, the IITs in India where there are so few women. So in many of the classes, I was the only uh, woman. And, uh, you know, at that point, I guess, you know, it started hitting me, oh, this is so odd, right? And all the attention is on me many times. If I skip a class, <laughs> suddenly the professor is like, where were you, right? So it's a very different experience uh, than a typical male in uh, going through engineering. And, you know, and that's propagated. So, you know, there's uh, not many women and women of color in many places I go to. And uh, I would like to change that. And for me, I think, the important thing is to look for allies, look for mentors, look for people who uh, are open and willing to hear my experiences, right? And how I'm feeling in such a room. And I think that's awareness has also greatly changed in the last few years because before that, in fact, I almost tried to hide away that identity, right? I never wanted to talk about my experiences as a woman. I didn't want to be seen in a women-specific event. I skipped all of them because I was just too worried about being put in a box and being branded in a certain way. Uh, but now I own that and I see so many other women owning that. And I think that's been a very welcome change. I, I think I can speak for both Dylan and I when I say this, but I'll say especially from my perspective being a woman in tech, I, I really do look up to um, the efforts that you've made, Anima, in trying to build this inclusivity and making computer science be incredibly inclusive to women. And one of those actions that you've done that really stuck out to me was when you fought for the renaming of the NeurIPS conference. And I was wondering if maybe for our listeners, you can explain the story of what motivated you to do that, uh, what went down during it and after it, and um, your feelings about all of that now. Yeah, yeah, that was an eye opener. I never expected, you know, opening that Pandora's box going in, because to me, it was so simple. You don't call a conference nips, right? It's juvenile, it's just silly. Uh, but, you know, but before deep learning just took off, I wasn't too bothered about it personally myself either because, you know, it was a small community. I felt mostly comfortable, right? Even though uh, I was new to the community when I started my faculty career, people welcomed me. And when it is 300 or 400 people, it feels intimate and good. So it wasn't an issue back then, but it became a huge issue when all this tech bro culture started go, coming into the community, you know, the community explodes, there's a lot of money coming in. And so there are parties that involve women scantily clad, rappers uh, that involve unlimited alcohol, that involve all kinds of really bad elements, right? So it's just very unwelcoming for women in the community. And that's when I think the naming uh, became a huge issue. In fact, uh, 
one of the hedge funds wanted to gain notoriety and so they pay, printed a t-shirt about a joke on nips and started distributing it in the conference. <laughs> so you can see how now the name is center stage and we can't ignore this. And, but there was a lot, of, I was surprised at the extent of pushback because first they did a survey and they did it in such a poor way because they said, oh, the majority don't care about this. Of course, the majority are men and it doesn't affect them. They may just have a laugh and say, this is silly. Why are we wasting our time? Right. And so that survey even showed how uh, the voices of minorities and women are uh, just right. No one cares. And that's when it was important to rally around this so on Twitter. Uh, when I saw, um, you know, that uh, the other women are getting ignored and uh, right, nothing's being done. This is said, this is it. The, the, the decision is made. I'm like, no, you know, you cannot just do this. And so after I started tweeting, uh, so many others joined. And in fact, uh, you know, we wrote a paper together based on our conversation in Twitter, you know, with uh, Elena Fertig, uh, Daniela Witten, uh, and Jeff Dean. So, so it was a lot of well, allies and supporters, which was great. But, you know, it's always those few bad apples, right, in social media that make life very difficult. So the trolling, I was just shocked to the extent of trolling that occurred uh, personally for me. Um, and, and a lot of it moved from Twitter to Reddit and the Reddit threads kept getting very long, right? The moderation was a joke. I mean, they kept uh, uh, making all kinds of jokes about, um, you know, my looks, my sexuality, everything. Uh, it was just nasty to read that. I even got gun threats. Uh, other women who tried to challenge that got threatened. And so this is when I realized, oh my God, this can become dangerous very quickly. And I can now see how public figures who are women uh, have such a difficult life online. And uh, uh, so yeah, that experience taught me a lot on how to better manage my presence online, you know, how to block people, how to mute them. I think all those controls now were essential and how also over time I, to get, get more allies. So once I got a lot more allies, then they would take the conversation forward, right? So it wasn't overwhelming for me. Uh, so I learned a lot about uh, the importance of social media because without that, we wouldn't have the community of allies. Without that, we wouldn't have the awareness but also the downside of it that, you know, I felt in danger, other women felt uh, threatened, and it was just mentally and emotionally a very uh, a challenging experience. And so in the end, I think the whole purpose was just not only about the name, right? The name was symbolic for the deeper problems in the community. And so this uh, saga rather <laughs> uh, showed the deep problems in the community. And now people got talking about that. And then, you know, there is the diversity and inclusion committee now that's taken very seriously. And we take code of ethics, code of conduct very seriously. So I think it did bring about a big change. You know, the parties all now are history. They're replaced by more inclusive events and uh, ensuring there is good security, there is good culture uh, at these events and there's good professionalism because that's what we want at a professional event. 
One thing you said that really struck me, which is true to my experience as well, is that uh, sometimes when a group or a community starts and it's you know only 300 and 400 people, uh, then it's one thing. And then uh, especially something with e- even AI ethics, right? Like people are trying to figure this thing out. Uh, big companies are putting a lot of money into it, uh, along with responsible AI, and, and the scale is just advancing at such a quick pace. And I'm wondering uh, from where you're sitting, especially as, um, again, you're, you're at NVIDIA, you're in these spaces where there's a big scale, <laughs> you're trying to do a, a lot, you're impacting, your decisions are impacting the world in a very direct way um, at a pretty large scale. And I'm wondering for you how that uh, money and that scale impact, I guess, the, the work that you do or how you even think about like responsibly scaling the work that you do. Yeah, I think uh, this is where having diverse teams is so important, right? Because they bring different perspectives and experiences in terms of what the impacts can be. Because for one person, it's impossible to visualize all possible ways a technology like AI can be used. And so I always think about, you know, what are the pros and cons in terms of the data we are using, right? So unfortunately, a lot of standard data sets in the community are biased, are imbalanced. Uh, But then now, on the other hand, that's where the benchmarks are. So if you don't use them, you cannot get research done. So now if you use them, how do you still try to mitigate the effects of it? You know, do you put a disclaimer or do you say you can now fine tune on a more balanced data set, right? So I try to think about solutions because if we Sometimes, you know, the idealism is great, but if it's an utopia and it stops people from uh, doing research, right, it won't get adopted. So we have to find a middle ground to keep moving forward and keep moving in the direction of better ethical AI. And so that's why I also think about the incentive mechanisms in the community, right? Like if researchers are incentivized to keep using uh, imbalanced data set, keep releasing models that are biased, and then companies are incentivized to just use them and make money, right? The problem isn't solved. So we need to also think about how to build the right incentives, either through regulation, either through public awareness, right? The PR angle, like, you know, if a company is releasing uh, biased AI, then there's a lot of bad PR and that we've seen in the context of face recognition. So those aspects, I think we need to build the community structure to incentivize people to do the right thing. Yeah, I want to latch on to that building awareness piece. And it's almost like a transparency piece, it sounds like. It's something that I've seen you work on a little bit. And a term that I've, I've heard you use is democratizing AI. And that seems to kind of go hand in hand with this transparency piece and this awareness Um word. So I'm wondering if you can maybe give us a definition of what democratizing AI is and then what your efforts to do that are right now. I mean, to me, democratization is both access, representation, accountability, transparency of AI, right? So that means we have to understand how AI was trained, you know, what data went into it, what kind of algorithmic decisions were made, and what happens if AI is wrong, what are the uh, plan B that is in place? And so the model cards, you know, that Timnit Gebru, Meg Mitchell and others have uh, come about is a great framework to enable that. 
<coughs> Sorry about that. So, so that's the first piece in terms of understanding how AI was trained, you know, how it is going to be deployed and how it is going to be monitored and policed. And then the second piece is, what about the representation uh, in AI? Like if, uh, for instance, uh, we have our voice recognition and it doesn't recognize all the accents, then that's a bad thing, right? The minorities are having a worse experience than the majorities. But compare that to face recognition by the law enforcement, their uh, bad recognition is in fact a life and death situation for many minorities. So, you know, we also want to weigh which one is an inconvenience versus an adverse effect, right? And uh, based on that, build policies around making the um, changes in the <coughs> okay i can i can go again sorry <laughs> something's in my throat um no worries yeah so based um on how how the wrong decisions impact the community we can then design regulation around that and we can say what should be the standards that are met and is there a way for people to contest these decisions and write to these companies and demand better services. And finally, we need better representation in terms of the teams itself. You know, when AI teams are diverse, only then we can have creative solutions and we'll know issues that can arise before AI is deployed. When uh, you talk about regulation, um, I guess I just want to hear more <laughs> about what you think about regulation. And um, when you say it, if you're thinking about it more from the government perspective or more from uh, industry self-regulating, um, and then is it beyond uh, like just general guidelines? Like is, uh, is there some level of either punitive or more direct, I guess, incentive structure that um, you would recommend, especially when it comes to AI ethics and implementation? Yeah, so when it comes to regulation, it's not one size fits all, right? So we have to understand uh, what are the uh, implications of a wrong decision by a current AI algorithm in which social context. And because a lot of innovation in AI has happened because of open data sets and open algorithms. So we have to keep that virtuous cycle going while also ensuring that the bad effects are minimized. And I think you know how we treat a self-driving car and a healthcare AI versus uh, our uh, say Siri app is should be different, right? So and that's what makes it so tricky, you know, how to set these standards and for I think the government can start from these sensitive applications, you know, law enforcement, autonomous driving, healthcare. So you know we can start there and keep that much more rigid and transparent, and then work our way through the rest of the domains. As we talk about governance and standardization and global policy making, uh, I have to ask, because you have participated in what's called the Global Governance of AI Roundtable, something that I had never heard of before uh, looking at your resume. So I'm wondering if you can explain to our listeners what that is. It sounds really cool. Uh, what your position was on it, how you uh, were a part of that, and then um, I guess what what the goal of this group is. Certainly. 
you know, the GGAR uh, or the global governance of AI uh, was uh, uh, started in Dubai uh, and I was uh, so fascinated to hear that Dubai has a minister for AI, right? So there is a lot of forward thinking uh, aspects in terms of how to bring AI to the region and how to rally the community around and build better policies and governance. So as part of that uh, was this event of bringing in more than 100 experts uh, not just in core AI, but around policy, around governance, around regulation. So I got to meet people from all over the world thinking about uh, these issues. I chaired the committee on mapping the progress of AI. And so questions like, how do you decide if this is a progress or not, I think is so critical because there is so much of hype around in the media. So we need to have metrics to measure what progress means and how to you know, look at the impact of AI, because as we can see from the hype, not all the promises are delivered, but as AI experts, we knew that wouldn't be feasible anyway, right? So how to set the correct expectations and uh, especially make policymakers aware of the limitations of AI, right? Because a policymaker could say, oh, I want an AI that's completely transparent, private, every kind of checklist, and then <laughs> computer scientists will be like, no way. I mean, so that's why we need to kind of set those expectations of how to enable trade-offs. And that's what uh, that event helped me connect with many people in the area to do that. As someone uh, who is situated in machine learning and really um, you've, you've done some very deep dives with, you know, algorithms themselves. I'm wondering how you think about uh, bias and fairness in the work that uh, you do, because they can have such different connotations depending on what context you might be in. Certainly. Uh, and that's why it's such a tricky topic uh, to think about uh, bias and ethics, right? And I think in terms of the core algorithms when we are working on, I, I even don't think we should be claiming this is ethical or fair because the societal context is so important. Uh, whereas we remove that when we are doing research, we just look at the math, right? So to me, I think I'd rather think about it in the framework of good generalization. You know, it generalizes to the minority classes in the data set. Uh, it can uh, uh, be robust, you know, if you put up uh, the data, it still works well. It gives you the right uncertainty. So you know uh, when AI is making mistakes, it's not making them with high confidence. I think these are all desirable properties of the algorithms. And so once we build such robust and generalizable algorithms, then uh, it's really up to the policymakers and everyone else to ensure that it's used in the right context and trained on the right data. So I asked this question understanding that you might not be able to answer it uh, because of the way that large tech companies work, but I'm wondering, maybe even not just with NVIDIA, but with your experience working with machine learning algorithms for so long, do you have a specific example that comes to mind of a model you were creating, a data set you were using, or something that you were making that was with machine learning or AI, where you realized, oh, this might be bad, or this might be biased, this might be unfair, this might be unethical, and uh, if that happened, what you what you did to go about trying to remedy some of that? Yeah, so you know, I think I can now talk about uh, my experience in Amazon, uh, 
where I worked before I came to NVIDIA. And there, I think, you know, that was right uh, more, three years ago or so. So back then there was even less awareness about AI fairness and the topic was even just beginning to come up in conferences. So, you know, when the face recognition tool was released then and, uh, right, was being sold to law enforcement, internally there were discussions, but uh, it was very hard to convince the uh, management in terms of, right, removing such a capability or removing the tool uh, because, you know, the uh, argument was, oh, no, it's really up to law enforcement to decide how to use it. We are just enabling them. You know, we are the tool makers. <laughs> just because we manufacture a knife doesn't mean we are dangerous, right? So this uh, shirking of responsibility, if you want to call it, I think uh, that was there and that was very hard to overcome. Uh, but I think, you know, once the movement becomes global, like Black Lives Matter, and that puts focus onto this issue, things change, right? So sometimes I think we have to be patient, you know, when we are doing activism inside companies and still existing in uh, these structures that have systemic racism and sexism, we have to be patient because most people are allies, they want to help, but uh, they feel always worried about taking big steps and sometimes you need to rally the larger community to make that happen. So uh, this being the Radical AI podcast, uh, every uh, episode we ask our guests about what Radical AI means to them or just what the term radical means to them because part of this project is kind of co-defining that. Um, And so we're wondering for you uh, what you think of as kind of your definition for Radical AI uh, and then if you situate yourself within that definition. Just a quick pause for all of you listeners In Anima's answer to Dylan's question here, she references the use of tensors and how they have radically changed the field of machine learning. For those who don't know what tensors are, you can think of a tensor as a giant matrix that exists inside of a machine learning algorithm. This matrix helps the algorithm utilize large quantities of data in order to learn from it and become artificially intelligent. Anima actually spearheaded the development of tensor algorithms in her seminal paper titled Tensor Decompositions for Learning Latent Variable Models back in 2014. All right, let's get back to the interview. Yeah, I mean, radical is such an energizing word for me, right? Like radical is sharply deviating from the norm, like, you know, not just deviating, sharply deviating. And uh, yeah, so for me, uh, you know, when I came into the AI field, I did that when I was beginning my faculty career. And because I knew there are so many challenging problems in the area, so I could see it just from a fresh lens without preconceived notions. You know, so I came across uh, the problem of unsupervised learning and how to discover hidden variables from data in an automated way. And for that challenging problem, I started to ask, okay, how do we, you know, think about using uh, relationships uh, in the data to extract this at scale. And that through that, I came across the use of tensors. You know, I had maybe looked at tensors before in my quantum mechanics class, never thought about it much. And so this connection of thinking about correlations in data and the use of tensors was to me very radical. And at that time, right, machine learning didn't have 
the use of tensors at all. You know, now we have TensorFlow, TensorCores, everything is a data tensor, right? So there is more awareness of how, what tensors can do for machine learning. Uh, but to me, it was uh, really exciting to be uh, in that radical place to introduce tensors to machine learning. So yeah, so that's been, uh, I think uh, for me, being radical is bringing about a positive change. And when I look through uh, even how, for, you know, in my family, my mom was radical in being a first female engineer in the community or how my grandfather built machines without having any engineering background. All those inspire me to take risks in to do better, to do good for the society. And as we come to the close of this interview, we ask our guests a piece of advice that they might have relevant to something that they said during the interview. And I, I want to focus in on this um, wanting to do good because I truly believe, and maybe this is the optimist in me, but I, I truly believe that engineers, for the most part, do want to do good, or at the very least, they don't want to do bad. So I'm wondering, from your engineering and computer science perspective, for other computer scientists who are looking to not do bad, but also to do good in their work, in their job, in their life, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, I think the first important thing is education, right? And we engineers many times don't have the tools to even think what it means to do good because technical education doesn't always have the full grasp of humanities, uh, you know, ethics, courses are only now getting introduced in uh, some universities. So it's almost like you have to be much more proactive in first gaining that awareness, you know, talk to the experts uh, and think more deeply about it. Because I think uh, that's where this disconnect is because many engineers are not even equipped to think about it. And it's always a bias, right? Because if someone's very smart and can do all this complex math, it's like, oh, how hard can this be? And no, it's hard because we don't have the foundations to think about it. So I would advise to first start from the basics, do a course on ethics, talk to the experts in humanities, and only then can you think more uh, creatively and deeply about this problem. So where Jess and I are situated as PhD students, uh, Jess is in information science and I'm in religious studies. So we have the humanities and, and computer science and kind of talking. Um, and uh, one of the, the uh, series of, of research projects that we're working on is on computer science education, uh, which you've spoken to a few times in this interview. And I'm wondering if you, um, because you're also situated in that education space, about what what do we do? <laughs> um, because they're, even from the humanities, like I'm very siloed in learning particular things, but I'm not learning some of these computer science things, but I have an ethical perspective that I could possibly bring to those conversations. And computer scientists obviously have a lot to bring to those conversations, but don't necessarily get that ethics training or the moral philosophy training that might be beneficial for building technologies down the line. And I'm wondering uh, if you have thoughts on like, what do we do <laughs> about that? And I think that's where Caltech being a small place has helped a lot um, because, you know, for instance, Frederick Eberhardt uh, in philosophy, you know, he works on causal inference. He's teaching the course on ethics for AI. And there's a lot of right conversation with computer scientists. Many computer scientists take that course, you know, work, talk to him. So I think you need bridges like that who can speak to both communities and have common language. So I still believe I think some mathematical grounding in humanities is important to have that conversation started. 
and similarly for computer scientists to right to have that foundation in humanities so we need to meet in the middle well, Anima, thank you so much for sharing all of your work with us. And for our listeners who want to engage more deeply with your work or maybe get in touch with you, maybe even prospective PhD students, what is the best way for them to do that? Well, I'm on social media and you know, on Twitter, for instance, and uh, they can also reach out to me through my website. Great. And we'll include all those links in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for coming on, Anima. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks a lot, Justin Dillon. What you're doing is amazing. It's great to increase public awareness and uh, it's radical. Thank you. We again want to thank Dr. Anima Anand Kumar for coming on the show today and for a wonderful conversation. Jess, as we come out of that conversation, what is especially sticking out to you or resonating with you right now? Well, I think the first thing on my mind is everything that Anima was talking about in terms of the stigma that engineers have against ethics. <laughs> and that is like such a big statement. So maybe I should backstep for a second before I just say something that's such a bold claim like that. But I think especially in my experience, coming from a computer science background and getting my undergraduate degree in computer science, I know exactly what Anima is talking about here, and I've experienced this firsthand. So maybe I do have the right to say such a bold statement, although I shouldn't generalize it to all engineers. But I do think that in the field of engineering, there is this stigma against the word ethics. And we talked about this with Jen Wortman Vaughn a little bit in our recent episode with her too. What is the problem with the word ethics? And what is the problem with the idea and the concept and the topic of ethics when it comes to engineering problems. I know for me personally, I have quite a few friends in engineering where every single time I bring up, oh, what are the social consequences of this algorithm? What about AI and machine learning changing society? They just roll their eyes and groan and say like, oh, here's Jess again talking about AI ethics. Okay, here we go. And I think that I can't be alone here. I'm sure there are a lot of engineers who are maybe in my position who feel the same way that I do and get constantly pushed down or getting constant pushback from their other engineering friends. And I'm sure maybe even people listening to the show right now are in the other boat and they're just engineers who want to do uh, math problems and algorithms and development work and they don't really want to have to think about the social impacts of their code. And honestly, I think that's totally understandable as well. I have quite a few friends who are in that position and so I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with just wanting to be a computer scientist and not a social scientist, but it doesn't mean that it's not important for us to figure out ways for engineers to learn how they can incorporate ethical speculation and thinking and these important concepts and uh, discussions about the societal impacts of our technologies in the education for computer scientists so that maybe it isn't as much of a, an eye-rolling conversation or there isn't as much of like a negative stigma or stereotype around bringing ethics into that technical space. Yeah, I guess the only thing I'd push back on on what you said a little bit is that I think that all of those problems also show up in social science spaces as well. Um, so one thing that I'm thinking about, uh, like, like, I just don't want to idealize my own, uh, <laughs> you know, field of, of social science or of the humanities as like, uh, not, not taking the easy way out in the same way that we might be like, uh, assuming or accusing or whatever folks in STEM of, of doing. Um, so I'm thinking, here, here's what I'm thinking, basically, is that, um, 
people, as Anima said, like to avoid hard things. Hard things are by definition hard and difficult, and if things are difficult, we might not necessarily want to do them, especially if it's not like in our, our faces. And this is something that like, when I used to uh, serve as a minister, something I learned time and time again of people like, there are certain things people just don't want to deal with. People don't want to deal with death. People don't want to deal with privilege. People don't want to deal with uh, the hard you know, realities of life. It's much easier to just kind of be in a space in which we all think we're doing good for the world and we don't have to examine or look in the mirror or, or whatever. And I think that engineers have a very, uh, they're in a very particular place right now because of the certain uh, powers and privileges that they might have in terms of designing technology. But I think all of us, um, especially if we're in a comfortable or privileged position, it's really hard to get out of that privileged position and say, oh, no, I actually want to look at the hard thing. Like, oh, there's this hard thing out there. That's that's what I want to spend my time doing. Like, uh, I get it even as a social scientist. Like, if there's a problem out there, if there's like an easier way to solve that problem or a more efficient way or um, even coming from like, you know, an engineering family, it's like I, I love solving puzzles. Right. Like I love having an answer and I can claim it's the answer. And uh, I think it's really hard for, for all of us to really throw ourselves into, no, actually, maybe we should look at the hard things. Like, maybe we should throw ourselves into asking the hard questions as opposed to avoiding the hard things. I think it's like a very human uh, response and, and interaction that maybe it's, it's easier to, um, especially because of the real potential harms that engineers can cause in designing technology. But I think it's a... Um, let's say it's a case study for how we all deal with uh, that tension of not necessarily wanting to ask those hard questions or look at those hard things or the impacts that we're causing based on wherever we're situated in this technological system. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I hadn't thought about that too much. Maybe it's it's less so uh, something that is the fault of the engineers and it's more so just a part of the human condition that we really don't like ambiguity when it comes to solving problems. And I can definitely see that. Which is, which is not an excuse, right? It's not an excuse for us to not ask the hard questions. It's just a part of the description of it. Definitely. Yeah. And, and I think the natural progression here is saying, well, OK, so we have this ambiguity. There are no best solutions to some of these problems that exist in society and that are perpetuated by technology. So what do we do with it? And I really appreciated Anima's advice here. And uh, I, I, this is probably coming from a biased place for both you and I, Dylan, because this is something we're actively researching. But her call towards education and awareness building in the field of technology, and I guess I should say maybe the discipline of technology and incorporating ethics and humanities into that discipline in a way that is approachable and understandable and maybe not quite so fear-mongering or scary for those who weren't looking to get into that in the first place. Yeah, one of the, it's kind of cool for me. So folks who are listening to this when it comes out live, um, it's it's cool to, to listen to this and to our previous episode with uh, Dr. Jen Wortman-Bahn, as just referenced earlier, as coming out in kind of back-to-back -back weeks, because there are certain themes that have uh, gone through both of them, uh, including this question of avoiding hard things and, and education, what we do with education, and then also this concept of language. Uh, so I really appreciated uh, Anima's insight here into the change of uh, the NIPS conference into NURPS conference and what needed to happen behind the scenes in order to make that happen. Um, and behind all of that is like this assertion or maybe this, this battleground of to what degree does language matter, right? To what degree does what we call things matter? And, and obviously, again, maybe not obviously, but I think just both in you and I 
uh, come on the side of, well, no, actually what we call things signifies some meaning of some kind, and therefore it matters uh, to, to a large degree what we call things. Like even when we call this podcast the Radical AI Podcast, we're signifying something and we're not signifying other things by the language that we're choosing. Um, but that was just such a, a great case study for me and a great reminder for even when we're unintentionally naming things in our field or naming new technologies or even naming robots, right, that we are uh, making some sort of claims about purpose and meaning. Um, and some of the negative consequences that we don't even think about are, uh, or we some some of us <laughs> don't always think about, I guess, are um, whether those naming conventions are creating welcoming spaces or uh, harmful spaces to folks in our community. Totally. I even saw this on Twitter the other day. I wish I remembered uh, which scholar it was who said this, but they were asking if instead of us using the language for a double blind study, instead of calling it that, to call it a uh, mutually anonymous study, um, just because that language of the, of the double blind study is not promoting inclusivity. Uh, and so I, I think you're totally right. There, I mean, we've talked this to death probably on our show at this point. Language matters, narratives matter, definitions matter, and the way that we tell the stories around all of those decisions, they matter. Right. Well, and there's a reason why we talk it to death on this show because it matters, right? <laughs> like this, it's it's real. I mean, we're going to keep talking about it, and people are going to keep talking about it uh, until it stops mattering <laughs> because it does to such a large degree because it frames conversations that, that we don't even realize that we're framing. Um, and, and again, that's, that's why that's our, one of our rallying cries is that stories matter and language matters. Yeah. So you can definitely expect to hear more conversations about why storytelling matters, why language matters, why narratives matter, why definitions matter, and why all these things matter from Dylan and I. But for now, we are out of time. So we'll have to cut the conversation there. For more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at RadicalAI.org. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Make sure to stay tuned for new episodes every Wednesday and join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod. And as always, stay radical. Wanna, do you want to do any banter? Are we bantering? Are we going to banter at this recording? Is that, is that what we do? Is this our banter? It's just been a while since we've done banter at the end. Is this, banter? Is this our reintroduction of the banter? Pro- for those who stay long enough for the banter at the end? I'm probably going to include this just for the amount of times that we say banter on this. So, um, yeah, no, I feel like this was pretty, pretty solid. Is this solid banter? Is this what banter is supposed to be? Honestly, I, I could probably talk about some of the stuff we were just talking about in this outro for like much longer. <laughs> like we should, we should talk, we should pick this up, stuff up at some point again. Um, but yeah, no, I, that was that was a great conversation with Anima, I think. Well, Dylan, stay on the line. Let's keep talking about why storytelling and language matters. I'm not done. <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> but but we're we're out we're out of time. Maybe we should uh, record a, an episode that comes out every you know month uh, on, a, on a regular time. That's like a smaller episode, maybe like a mini type of- Like a of, miniature episode? Yeah, yeah, like a smaller than normal 
kind of yeah like a like a miniature poodle but like i episode wish there was format. a word for that mm. like i wish there was like a some sort of like combined word of like miniature and episode <laughs> that was one word have we made our point I think that would make this world a better place <laughs> has this point been made <laughs> i think this is why language matters <laughs> yeah, this is why language matters. Uh, at some point we'll come out with another minisode if you've listened this far <laughs> just just stay tuned <laughs> just, just keep staying tuned and this has been dylan and jess <laughs>